Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning. It's good to have you here. We are still in our series about Abraham, who starts as a man named Abram. And I was trying to think about a reason. Every, every week I get up here, give you a little recap, and I talk about why are we looking at the life of Abraham. And I thought of a story that would help illustrate it, because we're looking at him because of his faith. And uh, there's a pastor whose name is Francis Chan. Maybe you guys have heard of Francis Chan before. If you haven't, Here's a shameless plug. We're starting a Sunday school next week with some teaching by Francis Chan, so you should definitely come to that. Um, But Francis Chan tells the story. He was a pastor of a very large church in California uh, named Cornerstone, and and the front of Cornerstone is a very large stage. And uh, and Chan was trying to share about faith. And so he brought with him to church a BB gun. And on the far side of the stage, he put a balloon over there, and he taped it to the wall. And he, he, he kind of stood there with the BB gun in front of the congregation, and he said, how many of you think that I can hit that balloon from here? You know, and people raised their hands, and they kind of jeered him a little bit, and nobody thought he's going to do it, right? I mean, they just think this is a question. So then, then Francis asked the congregation, how many of you believe so much? He said, keep your hands raised. How many of you believe so much you'd be willing to come up and hold the balloon for me? Well, a whole bunch of hands went down real suddenly, right? But there's still quite a few hands that are up there. And he said, okay, how many of you guys believe so much that I could hit that balloon that you'd come up and you'd hold it in your teeth? Every hand went down except for one hand. It's a mega church, all right? There's a thousand people there. One hand stayed up. Now, of course, in this moment, this is where the illustration ends, right? That's what we think. It's just a good pulling of the congregation. Well, Francis says in that moment, he had this thought in his head. He thought, I could hit that balloon. And so he, the one person with his hand raised was a young college-age kid. And he said, come on up here. And the kid went over to the balloon, taped it on the wall, and took it off the wall and put it in his teeth. And he stood there like this sideways. And Francis picked the BB gun. And sure enough, he shot that balloon. Of course, after the service, there's a whole bunch of lawyers that came up to him and told him he can't do that ever again. And so it was one service of their many services that day where that illustration happened. But Francis tells that story, and he said, so in the beginning when he asked how many people believe he could hit that balloon, how many people really believed? Out of that whole congregation, how many people really believed? Right. So Abram is a man who's set apart because of his faith. Sort of like this illustration when Francis asks who's willing, there's only one person who's really gonna believe that he can do it. Francis, Francis, Abram's faith is special. He doesn't have scriptures to look back on. You and I have a Bible we can read. We can read all these scriptures. We get into the New Testament. Even the disciples are well-trained in the Old Testament scriptures. They have all of this information about who God is. Abram has none of it. Um, we have the life of Jesus that we can look at because Jesus is the perfect image bearer of, G- of, of God. We can look at his life. If we want to know what God's like, we look at Jesus' life. Uh, Abram doesn't have any of that. So there's this massive step in faith that Abram takes when he begins to follow God. 
That's why we're looking at him. That's why we're studying him. That's why we are taking his life chapter by chapter each week and digging in. One of the things that we've come to realize about Abram is that he's a guy who likes to have things in his control. And when he's not sure that they're in his control, he makes his own plans. So Abram's really happy to listen to God. He's happy to follow God. But when he's not sure about what's going to happen next, he begins to make his own plans. So we've seen in the very beginning of his story that when famine strikes the land, Abram makes a plan to go into Egypt. All right? God didn't say go to Egypt during the famine. Abram goes to Egypt. When Abram's on his way to Egypt, he becomes very fearful that because his wife is so beautiful that the Egyptians will kill him and just take her. So he comes up with a plan. God didn't say, here's what you do. He said, you know what? We're just going to tell everybody you're my sister. He comes up with his own plan. When it's been 10 years since God promised him a child and he has no child, Abram makes a plan to give his estate, his money, his land, his people, his wealth to a man named Elizer of Damascus. He makes his own plan. And last week in the chapter we read, God steps in and says, Abram, I know it's been 10 years. Eliza is not going to be the person who inherits your estate. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give it to you from your flesh and blood. Today in our chapter, we're going to see Abram make another plan. Um, and, and I'll just say this about the chapter before we jump into it. Last week was Family Sunday. I'm so glad the kids aren't upstairs for this one. This is a weird chapter. This chapter resembles more to me of like a drama romance television show than something from Scripture. But that is actually one of the things that I really appreciate about Scripture. Is that it would have been so easy to smooth over the bumps in the story. It would be so easy to do that. But rather than smooth over the bumps... They take an honest approach and they write down what happened. And scripture is messy. And it can make us uncomfortable. This chapter makes me uncomfortable. There are chapters coming that make me more uncomfortable in this story yet too. But the Bible doesn't whitewash it. It tells it how it is. And I appreciate that. We don't really have anybody in this chapter this morning that's kind of our stand-up, does-everything-right sort of guy. There's nobody in the chapter that gets to kind of bear that flag this morning. Um, it's a tough chapter in Abram's journey, and so what I want to do is I want to enter into it saying, let's have a lot of grace for the characters in our story, and let's have some sorrow for them too. There's sorrow that we should have. So go with me this morning to Genesis chapter 16. While you go to Genesis 16, I'll just remind you that our sermons in this series are divided up into three segments, go, grow, and gospel. And go is where we're going to go. Genesis 16. Uh, grow is when we look at the story that we're reading, the chapter we're reading, what do we take from this chapter and what should we grow in our own lives with? How should it challenge us to grow? And gospel is just the moment that we look at this whole story and we say, okay, where's Jesus present? Is there foreshadowing? Gospel means good news. What's the good news in this part of the story? So we're in Genesis 16. We're going to start with verse 1. It says this, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. We'll stop there. And 
This, this morning, I'm going to stop in a bunch of like middle verses, all right? So if you see like on the screen, I have a 1 to 2a. I'm dividing the verse into two parts, an a and a b. And so we're looking at the first half of verse 2, just so you guys are aware. Um, so, so we have Sarah coming up with a plan, Sarai coming up with a plan. Abram's 85 or 86 years old. It's been a solid 10 years since God made him this promise that he's gonna have offspring and he's had nothing. And last week, one of the things we talked about, we said, okay, when God comes to Abram to make the covenant, remember last week we talked about the covenant, and um, he says, I'm going to give you a child from your flesh and blood. One of the things we noticed is that there's representation of God in that conversation. God's doing the talking. He talks about Abram's flesh and blood, but one person who's not mentioned that would be pretty important to Abram having children is Sarai, Sarah. She's not mentioned. Her flesh and blood is not mentioned. And so what we want to say is, we're not trying to make excuses here, but it's entirely possible that Sarai and Abram were under the impression that perhaps God's plan includes Abram, but not Sarai. Okay? It's possible. So they come up with a plan, right? Sarai says, well, look, he's keeping me from it. He just promised that it's going to be from your flesh and blood. I have this servant, so take my servant, and maybe we can have a child through her. In biblical times and in ancient history here, using slaves and servants for surrogacy is not something that's uncommon. If they were to have a child with Hagar, likely the child would be taken from the servant's and raised as Sarai's and Abram's. One of the things that the text tells us is that Hagar is an Egyptian. And we wanna just take special note of that because we might wonder where that comes from. If we remember back to when Abram goes into Egypt and he tells everyone that his wife is his sister, Pharaoh marries his wife. And of course, that's not good, not in God's plan. So God visits a plague on Pharaoh's household and Pharaoh says, I've angered God, get out of here. Take your wife, get out of here. All the wealth you've accumulated, get out of here. And here's some gifts to bless you. And one of the gifts that he blesses Abram and Sarai with are slaves, Egyptian slaves. And so Hagar is probably one of these slaves. Interesting thing is we really wouldn't even know Hagar's name if her story didn't intersect with Abram's here in this way. Many slaves were given to Abram that day. Only one do we know their name. My last comment before we go on to the rest of verse two is this. You might say, oh, that's so weird. Hebrews having an Egyptian slave. I thought it was the other way around, right? Wasn't there like a time when there was Egyptians with Hebrew slaves? And, and you'd be right. In fact, last week when God makes his promise to Abram, he kind of gives him a vision of the future and says, for 400 years, your descendants are gonna be in captivity and slavery, but I won't forget them. You're right. This is kind of like what we would call mirrored foreshadowing, all right? There are Hebrews with Egyptian slaves right now. And one of the things that we wanna say is slavery is wrong. And I don't think anyone's batting an eye when I say that. I don't think anybody wants to fight me when I say, hey, slavery is wrong. It's 2020. We know slavery in any form, any kind, it's wrong. But 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, we did not know that. Even 150 years ago, we had Christians with slaves. The text should be a lesson and a reminder to us. It doesn't matter who has the slaves, whether it's this 
pagan culture, the Egyptians, or it's God's people that are following him, it doesn't matter who has the slaves. It's not okay to have slaves. No one can do it right. And we're going to watch a man who is seeking after God abuse privilege and power over his slaves. Not so different than in several hundred years when a man named Pharaoh will also abuse privilege and power over his Hebrew slaves, right? Slavery is not okay. No one can do it right. It's not a part of God's plan. Uh, Let's go into the second half of verse two. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. We'll pause there. Abram and Sarai waited for 10 years. Have you ever waited for 10 years for something? Can you put yourselves in their shoes just a little bit this morning and say, I can think of this thing that my spouse and I prayed for for 10 long years, waiting and waiting and waiting. They prayed for 10 years for this, and then they make this plan. One thing we also want to say is Hagar is being used here. Okay, she has no choice in the matter. She is a slave. She doesn't have rights. This is not a union of love. When they get married and she becomes Abram's second wife, this is not a union of love in his mind and in Sarai's mind. Hagar is good for one thing and one thing only, to give him a child. I want to also say this. I was reading a a book on this particular chapter this week, and I came across a quote from a scholar who said, the persuasion came not from him who called him. And I think that's a really good note for us to keep in the back of our head here. Um, I'll say that again. When it comes to this plan, when it comes to Abram going forward with this plan to sleep with his wife's servant or to marry again and have a second wife and sleep with her, um, the persuasion to follow this plan came not from him who called him. That did not come from God. It wasn't God that persuaded Abram to follow this plan. That persuasion came from somewhere else. And so one of the things that challenged me on that as I read that was, okay, if, there's a, if I'm in a place in my life where I'm coming to a crossroads and maybe I've been praying for something or waiting on something, I'm trying to wait on God for something, and it feels like, oh, it looks like there's a shortcut in front of me. I need to do the hard work of considering if that shortcut is something that's coming from God or not. Is that persuasion to take that shortcut coming from God, who called me, or is it coming from somewhere else? In this particular case, that persuasion came from Sarai, not from God. So God has called Abram. He said, I'm going to bless you with kids. But the persuasion to do this new thing came from his wife. Uh, Verse 4, we'll finish it out. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And we'll pause there. There's problems in the marriage. Is anybody wondering here why there's problems in the marriage suddenly? (laughs) Don't you love that she walks in and she's like, it's your fault. That's like, I love it. In scripture, we see all sorts of things happening that are outside God's plan for marriage, all right? We see polygamy, we see adultery, we see abuse, 
all sorts of times in the text, not just here, but in the text to come. And, and quite honestly, in a few weeks, we're going to get to a chapter where something much worse, well, I shouldn't say much worse, it's all equal, but something else that we look on as much worse even happens in this story. Um, if we look for it in the text, Scripture will always show us how making those sort of choices that do not honor the marriage will come back to haunt us. It will show us the pain. It will show us how it hurts people. And it will show us how it destroys relationships. We see Abram and Sarai inviting someone else into their marriage through polygamy. And now there's problems in the marriage. The text shows us that that's not benefiting them. Now there's problems. Hagar despises her mistress. She begins to despise her. There's probably some level of pride here, if you think about it, right? Um, Almost from the beginning, Hagar has been a slave with Abram and Sarai. Since he went to Egypt and came out, she's been there. Everybody is probably aware that there is no child for Abram to give his stuff, his money, his people, his land to. Everyone's aware of it. And suddenly, he marries a new wife, and immediately she's pregnant, That's got to feel to her like, well, I'm the better wife. I'm the better woman. Uh, Abram will love me more. He'll look more favorably upon me. The pride goes to her head, and the first thing she does is she despises her master. And Sarai, she can't stand her household. She's miserable. She blames her husband. She walks in and says, it's your fault. And what she should have said, and this is a lesson that we can all learn, The lesson that we should learn is that she should have said, I was wrong to offer up my servant. Or we were wrong to take this plan into our own hands. Those would have been better options than just simply blaming it. Uh, Bruxy Cavey, who's one of our BIC pastors, he makes a connection between this story and the story in the Garden of Eden. And so maybe you've already made that connection in your head. The story of the Garden of Eden where you have Eve who, uh, the serpent comes to Eve and kind of says, hey, did you know there's good and evil? And did you know that you can have knowledge of good and evil if you just eat from this tree? Oh, I know God said not to, but it's because he doesn't want you to know the knowledge of good and evil. So, So Eve goes to the tree and Eve says to her husband, I have a plan, do this with me. And her husband says, okay. And he does, right? When God approaches Adam and Eve, what happens? Adam goes, it's not my fault, it's hers. And she says, it's not my fault, it's his, to the serpent, right? We blame someone else when we get into these sort of predicaments. In both the story of the Garden of Eden and this story with Abram, Hagar, and Sarai, we have a wife creating a plan of action and a husband passively going along. In both cases, the husband just goes along with it. Let's keep going. I have more to say on this, but let's read verse six. So remember, Sarai is miserable. She says, it's all your fault. And Abram says to her, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar so she fled from her. We're making a mistake if we read this text and we say, see, this is what happens when a man's not in control. Hey, see, this is what happens when a man doesn't rule his household. We're making a mistake when we read it that way because this isn't about man versus woman. This is about man and woman, all right? That's the problem 
This is what happens when a partner chooses passivity over partnership. Just like in the Garden of Eden, just like now, the man simply says, okay. And when the man is then approached in the Garden of Eden, he blame casts. And when Sarai approaches him in this story, he says, well, your slave's in your hands. Do whatever you want. He just opts out once again, very passive. Rather than engaging, rather than being a partner, he opts out and says, well, she's yours. Do whatever you want. And what does she do? Well, she goes and she... She mistreats her. She abuses her in some way. The passivity continues. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Let's just pause and talk about how the angel addresses Hagar first. And you can look at the text on the screen so you can see. Does the angel say, hello, Hagar? Does the angel say, hello, Hagar the Egyptian? Hello, Hagar, wife of Abram? No. No, in fact, the angel calls her by her lowest title. Hello, Hagar, slave of Sarai. She had pride. It went to her head that she had gotten pregnant. She mistreated her master. Her master mistreated her. She now runs away. And the first thing the angel does is try to bring her into some humility. See, decorum teaches us to view one another and to call one another by our highest title. And when we do that, it can get into our own heads and we can begin to think of ourselves by our highest title, our most esteemed rank. But what humility tells us is to keep in mind your lowest title. And rather than let the highest one go to your head, remember your lowest title. She allowed pride to get the best of her and the angel shows her her pride and reminds her to be humble. So not wife of Abram, servant or slave of Sarai. And then he asks her a question, and I, and I considered whether or not to talk about this question this morning. I crossed it all out in my notes, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit anyway. Where are you going, and where do you come from? Where are you going, and where do you come from? In quite a literal sense, Hagar is coming from the promised land, essentially, coming from Abram, and she has moved toward this well, and if we were to look at a map, if I pulled a map up on the screen, what you would see is that she has moved directly like she is going back to Egypt. She's headed back to her people, her family, who knows. Where are you going? Back to Egypt, back to her people, back to their gods? Isn't it interesting that she wants to go back there, but it's the God of Abraham who comes and engages her? I feel like this question is a question that is asked of each of us when we come into this place this morning, and that's why I don't want to ignore it. Where are you coming from, and where are you going? God already knew where Hagar was coming from. God already knew where she was going, but he had a different plan in mind, didn't he? 
He's, going, he's about to give her some instruction, some correction and some instruction. And so I feel like sometimes you and I think we can hide where we're coming from and where we're going from God. And I think it's something that we need to engage honestly with, especially when we come into this place and we get on our faces, we get on our knees, when we worship him, when we learn about him. I think he's asking that question, where are you coming from? He wants you to share with him. It's not like he doesn't already know but he's waiting for you to share with him. You think God doesn't know where Hagar's coming from? He's waiting for Hagar to respond. Is there a willingness to even engage, even respond, even to share with this angel that is representing God? And where are you going? Again, he knows. He knows where you're going right now, what your plans are, what what your future holds. God is aware of those things, but he might have a different future in store for you. He certainly does in this moment for this woman. The wonderful thing that we're going to get to in a moment is even in the midst of receiving this correction, even in the midst of receiving a new direction, Hagar still feels seen by God. And that is unbelievable. So let's keep going. I want to get ahead of myself. Verse 8 Um, she answers the angel. She says, I'm running away from my mistress, she answered. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And I think we can relate to this. How many of us have been told something that we don't want to hear? Have been told to go to a place or go to a person that we don't want to go to? We don't know what happened exactly between Sarai and Hagar. We have no idea but we do know that the angel of God calls her to go back. We're not privy. What what kind of abuse was it? We have no idea. It could have been terrible. And yet the angel calls her to go back to the person that hurt her, go back to the person that she hurt. I want to make it really clear here. In no way am I suggesting that you should go back to something toxic or something abusive or somebody that's hurting you, or I'm not making that suggestion whatsoever. Period, end of the story right there. What I am saying is that sometimes we're in the wrong. Sometimes we've done wrong or we've wronged somebody, but we need to go make it right. We have been given this ministry of reconciliation is what it's called in scripture. And I, Second Corinthians says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So here is what I'm saying. Humility, when we're wronged, and reconciliation despite our pride, is something that should set us apart as followers of Jesus. I'll say it one more time. Humility when we're wrong and reconciliation despite our pride is something that should set us apart as followers of Jesus. Verse 10, then the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. So the angel tells her the hard thing. You gotta go back. You gotta make this thing right. And then the angel tells her this encouraging thing. The angel that represents God 
So God is essentially speaking to Hagar here, makes a promise not unlike the promise made to Abraham. I'm going to make your descendants too numerous to count. Is the promise kept? Well, are Hagar's descendants so numerous that they cannot be counted? Well, Islam can trace its heritage back to Abraham through Ishmael, Hagar's son. And scholars also suggest that Turkey, the people of Turkey, can be traced back to this woman. So yeah, God keeps his promise. He goes on. The angel of the Lord also said this to her. We're in verse 11. You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. I don't know what mom wants to hear that. (laughs) That seems pretty tough, doesn't it? I'll let you do the proper translation of what it means to be a wild donkey of a man, all right? He's going to be stubborn. He's going to be bullheaded. He's going to come up against everyone in his life, and he's going to be a rock in a hard place, not just with the people he meets, but with his family even. What I love is not the words that are said about what Ishmael will be like. What I love is that God steps in in such an incredibly intimate way with Hagar here. Hagar is alone at this well by herself. She is missing her spouse. It's usually a spouse, spouses that name a child together, right? They come up with that name. And maybe even today it's exciting. Maybe in biblical times it would have been more about the man coming up with the name. But in this moment, the angel of God steps in and says, you're alone. I'm here. Here's a name. Let me enter into relationship with you in such an intimate way. Let's name the child Ishmael. And it's going to be hard. But I'm here. That's that's phenomenal. Verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. I love this passage. It's one of my favorites. That might be weird because of the story that we're in. She names God. God is up to this point unnamed. It's not until Moses that God reveals a name to his people, right? He's unnamed. And so even as Abram encounters God, the way that we see him talked about in the scripture is God most high. That's the name that we see for him. But here she looks and she says, you are the God who sees me. Her name for him is so raw, it's so real, it's so intimate. You are the God who sees me. And so I think one of the things we can draw from the text here is that this might be the first moment where Hagar feels seen. Maybe in her whole life, and maybe that's a piece that you can relate with this morning. Maybe when you're coming here, you're like, yeah, no one sees me. I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. I have nothing to give anyone else. I'm nothing. No one sees me. That's Hagar. She's a slave. She's probably born into slavery. She's been given as a gift from Pharaoh to Abram, not to be a citizen, but to be a slave. And then her master gives him to her husband to be slept with. 
have a child with. Good for one thing. Hagar has never been seen, but in this moment, this intimate moment where an angel comes to her and finds her running away, provides her with correction, provides her with a new direction, says, I'm going to enter into relationship with you. I promise that your descendants will be so many. I promise I'll be here with you for this child. I promise. And she says, you are the God who sees me. Finally, I have seen the one who sees me. And so I I hope that's something that we can feel. I hope you can feel that. I hope you can feel that you've gotten to meet the God who sees you. I hope like Hagar, like you can say, I've seen the one who sees me. I hope that you have that this morning. I hope you have that sometime in your life. I've seen the one who sees me. The passage here, this section, this verse finishes by saying um, that she names the well, this long word. And and just, I don't know if you have a footnote in your scripture, but this means the well of the living one who sees me. So she names the place for this moment, this incredible intimate moment, she names the place for it. And when Moses is writing this, it says it still bears that name. That's why it's still called that. So for hundreds of years at least, the place is still called the well of the one who sees me. Verse 15, just close out the chapter. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son he had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And this is the end of the chapter. It's a way to communicate not just that Hagar had a son and named him Ishmael, but a way to communicate that Hagar listened to God and went back. Right? That's, this is how we know. She went back. She listened. As hard as that might be, she went back. I want to get into our grow area this morning. And what I want to talk about is I want to talk about our memories. I want to talk about our short memories and, you guessed it, grace. First, let's talk Sarai. At the start of the chapter, we find Sarai is a woman in need. She's a wife who's aging. She wishes desperately for a child, not just for her, but because her husband wants one and because God has promised them one. She wants to see her family carry on uh, through God's promises, but she can't seem to get pregnant which means she can't fulfill any of these promises. What must it be like to feel all that pressure on herself? And she can't do it. So she's in need. And she takes her servant, Hagar, and gives Hagar to Abram, her husband. And whether Hagar wanted it or not, it doesn't matter. Hagar marries Abram. Hagar gets pregnant, and Sarai is miserable. She runs to her husband. She blames him for the whole thing, and then she goes to her servant, and she mistreats her, maybe emotionally, maybe verbally, maybe physically. We don't know, but Sarai hurts Hagar. It didn't take Sarai very long to forget that she was the one in need, that she was the one who needed Hagar. Now, think about Hagar. Hagar was a slave in Egypt. In Egypt, Hagar's just a slave. But with Abram, she's the handmaiden of Sarai, the handmaiden of the sheik's wife. And then thanks to Sarai's plan, she's elevated even further than that. She becomes the the wife of the sheik, the second wife, but still the wife. And then pregnant with the sheik's child. She knew that she was pregnant. And as soon as she knew that she was pregnant, she began to treat Sarai 
poorly. She let that new status, she let that elevation go to her head, and it doesn't take Hagar very long to forget that at one point she was the one in need. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable about a king who gets his accounts out. And he calls his servants forward, he calls his citizens forward, and he begins to look over who owes him money. And a servant comes to him who owes him a sum of money that is so extraordinary it would be impossible for that servant to ever pay it back in his lifetime. And the king looks at him, and everyone knows what the punishment is. It's prison until it's paid back, which means for this guy, it's prison for life. And the servant begs forgiveness. Please give me time. Please, I'll do whatever it takes. Please, I promise I'll pay it back. And the king looks on him with pity, and the king grants him forgiveness. He forgives the debt. He clears the debt. He wipes it away. He erases it from his book. The ledger is clear, and he dismisses the servant. Go. And as the servant is on his way home, he encounters another servant who owes him money. Nowhere near the amount of money that he owed the king, but still he owed him money. And so he runs to the servant and he begins to choke him. Give me my money. Give it to me now. And the servant says, I can't, I can't. Please have forgiveness on me. Please just give me some time. I'll find a way to pay it back. And the forgiven servant says, no way. He calls the guards over and has the man put into jail. Well, the people that are watching are quite upset by this because they know what just happened for that servant. So they go to the king and they said, did you hear what your servant has done? The king said, no. And they tell him and the king calls the forgiven servant back and says, what have you done? Did you see how much mercy and how much forgiveness that I gave you? And you couldn't give mercy and forgiveness to your fellow servant to jail with you. Scripture says to be tortured. How quickly the servant forgot what he was forgiven of. In church, all too often, we struggle with pride and judgmentalism. And I don't know what your experience is per se with church over the years that you've been alive, over the years you've engaged with church, but I can tell you my experience with church hasn't always been good. Sometimes you engage with judgmentalism and pride with the people around you, about the people around you. Time and again, as people follow Jesus, as they get their life in order, they begin to look down on those who are still getting their life in order. Time and again, when we get our lives in order, we forget what it was like when our lives were in disorder. Last week, we had the example of the Jenga tower, and the Jenga tower fell over. And as we rebuild our tower, as it gets a little stronger, we forget what it was like when our tower was strewn across the front of the floor. And so we judge the people whose towers are still all over the floor, who are trying to stack the blocks. It has to stop. It's not something that we can be a part of. It doesn't honor God, it doesn't honor Jesus, it doesn't honor one another. It doesn't honor what's been given to you in the grace and forgiveness that you have been blessed with. The judgmentalism, the pride, it has to stop. Center your heart and your mind and your life on Jesus. Be a follower of him and I promise you, 
Watch as your life and your priorities and your relationships begin to change. Your heart begins to change. It softens. You begin to love and care in ways you have not before. It begins to unlock things, and sometimes it's hard and painful things that it unlocks. But press on, press forward, center your heart and your mind on him. No matter how long you have been in this thing called church, no matter how long you've been in a relationship with Jesus, no matter how long you've been privy to that grace and that forgiveness and that mercy, continue to have grace and forgiveness and mercy on one another. We are all sinners saved by grace. Not by our hand. We are saved by grace with Jesus. And so it's not with pride it's not with privilege. It's not with judgmentalism that we look down on anyone whose tower is a mess or who has just received the gift from Jesus or has not yet received the gift. It's a gift that you've been given. Go and show what that gift is like, how good it is. What is your life showing? by the way you love and the way that you act or the way that you gossip and the way that you judge and your pride. What tale is your life sharing? That's our grow, our gospel. Where do we see the gospel in this story? Where do we see the good news in this story? Where is Jesus present? And so what I want you to do is I want you to think in your head like you're watching a movie. The camera is high in the air and you can see desert all around. You see, you see heat rising in those waves in front of the camera so you know it's very hot. And the camera's coming down and you see there's something on the ground. I know you can begin to make it out as the camera gets closer. It's a well. There's a well there. And you see there's a, a lone solitary figure coming to the well. It's a woman. She's alone. She's coming to the well. She's now at the well. What story, what movie are you watching? Are you watching the story of Hagar or are you watching a story from the life and ministry of Jesus? It's hard to say because it looks the same. A few weeks back, we talked about Abram stopping at a place called the Great Trees of Moray. Um, 175 years after Abram stops there and builds an altar, Abram's grandson will dig a well there and it becomes known as the well of Jacob. And the well of Jacob is around for a very long time. And so many hundreds of years into the future, it's at this well that a Samaritan woman comes walking to it. In the heat of the midday sun, when temperatures are easily 105, 110 degrees, when nobody in their right mind would go and fetch water. But it's at this time of the day that the woman chooses to go fetch her water because she knows that no one will be there. Other women go in the morning when the sun has not yet risen or at night when the sun is sunken low and the heat is down, but she goes when she knows that no one would be there. She's tired of the abuse and the judgment that she had received. And there's Jesus walking up to the same well. And he asks her for a drink. And Jesus is a Jew this woman is a Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans have a long history of judgment and anger, persecution and hatred. It doesn't even cover the fact that there are religious differences. 
The Jews believe you have to worship on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Samaritans believe you worship on Mount Gerizim. Two very different things, but it creates a divide. The Jews and the Samaritans were once the nation of Israel together. They were both descended from Abraham. And we'll pause that story, think back to Hagar, a woman who shows up at a well alone. She's from a different country. Whatever language she's speaking with Abram and his family is not her first language. She hasn't had many choices in life. She's been a slave, told where to go, what to do, and now even who to sleep with, who to marry. In fact, the first iota of control that she may had was running away. And now, she is here, having run away from a master who abused her, from a husband whose first wife hated her. And she comes to the well. And it's not Jesus who shows up, but it's an angel representing God who shows up at the well. Both women are at a well. Both women are met by the Lord. And what I, I don't want to be mean in saying this, but both women are nobodies. Like I said, Hagar was just a slave. Wouldn't even know her name if it wasn't for all of this. A Samaritan woman is a Samaritan woman. One of many, many, many. Jesus looks at the Samaritan woman and he knows things he shouldn't know. He gives her correction, rebukes part of her lifestyle, and then he gives her direction. Jesus says to her, woman, a time is coming when you will neither worship on a mountain or in a temple. For those who worship God will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus welcomes her into his family. Jesus becomes her savior. So in a time when people thought that God was only for the Jews, Jesus opens wide the door to more. The angel, on behalf of God, says to Hagar, I'm going to give you many descendants, many children. I'm going to give you a son. His name is going to be Ishmael. And God enters into a very intimate relationship with Hagar. He provides correction and direction once again. And he names the child. Think throughout your scripture, how many child, children has God entered into and named? It's special. Don't forget that this is special. God gives her a picture of the child. He gives her a picture of the future. There's intimacy. And Hagar sees it as an intimate moment. And she says, you are the God who sees me. And so here's our picture of good news this morning. God sees both women. God gives both women correction. He gives both direction. And he opens a door of relationship to both women. God expands relationship far beyond what we would expect. In a day when God was only speaking to Abram, he speaks to a slave. In a day when Jews thought that God was their God and no one else's, he states that he's the God of so much more. We're not linked by race, we're linked by grace. God is the God of all and for all. 
He's given us a choice to make. Are we going to follow him or not? And some of us will choose to follow and some of us will choose not to follow. But he is still the one, the only God most high. He is still the God who is willing to leave the 99 to find the one. And the heavens still rejoice when one who doesn't know him comes to know him. He still lived and died and was resurrected for all, and he still waits patiently for as many to turn to him as will turn to him. He waits to bring us home so that many will choose relationship with him. So when you have a moment where you are engaging with someone who drives you nuts, when you have a moment where politics are driving you crazy or you hear about another country that's doing something that seems way far out there or you hear about yet another war. When you want to judge your spouse or your kids or your parents because you're fighting with them, remember that God loves them too. He is the God of all and the God for all. And we are not the judge. We have no idea when someone will come to know him, when someone will finally be seen, when someone will finally say, I see the one who sees me. The correction and the direction for us this morning is despite how we feel, we are to love one another. Despite how we feel, we are to have grace for one another. And despite how we feel, forgiveness is a part of our legacy. We see all of that in this story. The question that we have to ask ourselves is will we see it in our story? Will you share this gospel this week, even today? Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.